Need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. So where we last left off the grand narrative of the not-so-civil war, the last kind of chronological rather than topical episode in this series was way back in episode 139, of course, on the Battle of Gettysburg, and before that episode 137 on the nearly simultaneous fall of Vicksburg. Now, the loss at Gettysburg and the taking of Vicksburg were, as We now know, with the benefit of hindsight, the one-two punch to the Confederacy that made it very unlikely that they'd really win, barring some unlikely political black swan event. And the time just before those losses is now considered the high tide of the Confederacy. Not to say they didn't still occasionally win some battles, but with the benefit of hindsight, we can now clearly see that their chances of victory grew dimmer by the day in the aftermath of those losses, even though, of course, they still held out for almost another two years. And of course, people at the time wouldn't have necessarily known how long the war would last or how how it would turn out. You need hindsight for these sorts of things. But narratives of this war often seem to kind of scene skip from Vicksburg and Gettysburg to Grant and Sherman inaugurating a systematic total war campaign in 1864, rather than the haphazard intermittent total war campaign that had happened up through 1863. You know, when in about the spring of 1864, Grant and Sherman between them decide to just make total war standard operating procedure. And by the way, I am going to be making an episode in the relatively near future talking about this whole thing. It'll probably end up being another one of those big episodes. So you often have this almost kind of gap in the story where it's like, Vicksburg, Gettysburg. And then we have, you know, Grant taking over personally the command in the East and going after Lee in attrition war and Sherman beginning his notorious march of destruction. But in reality, there were things going on in that gap between the summer of 1863 and the spring of 1864. 
including the second costliest battle of the war and the largest battle in this war to take place west of the Appalachians, which, of course, I'm talking about Chickamauga, which was part of the crucial series of battles that resulted in the loss of Confederate control of Middle and East Tennessee and the opening of North Georgia up to Union invasion. In a lot of ways, this episode and this story is really about gaps. And I mean that on at least three different levels that I can think of. One is that... As I've already kind of alluded to, this fills in the gap between Gettysburg and Vicksburg in the summer of 1863 and then the adoption of systematic total war, a standard operating procedure in the spring of 1864. It's also about gaps in the sense that one of the key objectives in this episode is going to be Chattanooga, the city in southeastern Tennessee that was of great strategic value being perhaps the most important railroad junction in the Confederacy. And part of the reason for its strategic value and why it was a railroad hub in the first place was because it's in, it's in an important gap in the mountains. So that's another way in which this story is about gaps. And the third way in which this story is about gaps is zooming the lens in even more closely at the nastiest battle that we'll talk about in this episode, Chickamauga. Ultimately, the Union would lose the battle because of a mistaken belief that there was a gap and an attempt to fill that gap, which then created a real gap elsewhere on the lines that, as luck would have it, was exploited. So this is a story about gaps. It's a story about the frictions of war, and it's a story about no one fighting particularly well other than in a few cases and it being just kind of a clumsy slugfest. Now, previewing a bit what's going to happen in this episode, while some of the stuff we're talking about started actually before uh, Gettysburg and Vicksburg were concluded, things continued to go on into November of 1863 in the kind of southeastern Tennessee, North Georgia area. And meanwhile, back in Northern Virginia, Robert E. Lee and the Army of Northern Virginia were down from... Gettysburg, but of course not out, and they continued sparring inconclusively with George Meade and the Army of the Potomac. So this span of about half a year, often a gap in the conventional narrative, in between roughly July of 1863 and the spring of 1864, is the focus of this episode. Let's pick up the narrative for a moment in the Tennessee theater. Recall the Battle of Stones River, between William Rosecrans's Union Army of the Cumberland and Braxton Bragg's Confederate Army of Tennessee. That battle, which took place beginning on the last day of 1862 and carrying on through the second day of 1863, near the town of Murfreesboro in Middle Tennessee, which I covered back in the beginning part of episode 137, Gibraltar of the Confederacy. Now, that was a very bloody battle, which I compared to Antietam in a lot of ways, in that it was a very costly tactical draw, but ultimately, in the big picture of things, a strategic Union victory, because it caused the Confederate forces to leave that area. Bragg's forces retreated from their southeast, and Rosecrans, though, constantly being harassed by Lincoln, Stanton, and Halleck to aggressively pursue Bragg, nonetheless hesitated 
waiting for reinforcements and supplies, no doubt at least in part because of how bloody Stones River had been. Lincoln seems to have been annoyed with Rosecrans and to have seen him as perhaps being another George McClellan, being always hesitant, always reluctant to move, always asking for more men and more supplies. Finally, on June 24th, after many months of waiting, June 24th, 1863, Rosecrans began to move his army. Though he rarely gets much respect, Rosecrans actually proved that his delays weren't entirely laziness or cowardice, because he would carry out one of the most impressive, low-casualty maneuver campaigns of the whole war. What Rosecrans had been doing was getting reinforcements, planning, preparing, and waiting for the roads to be not super-duper muddy, as they were for much of that spring. Rosecrans sent each of his four infantry and one cavalry corps through a different gap in the Cumberland Hills. Bragg was headquartered in the town of Tullahoma, and his army had strong defensive positions in the hills and mountains of southeastern Tennessee. Rosecrans's forces successfully executed a fairly complex plan that involved a lot of feints to confuse Bragg as to where the main attacks would actually occur and that would allow Rosecrans's forces to get on either flanks of Bragg's army. Between June 24th and July 3rd, 1863, despite some really serious rainfall, Rosecrans's maneuvers and several small battles successfully pushed the Confederates back over 80 miles southeastward out of Middle Tennessee with very light casualties. The Union Army suffered only a bit over 500 total casualties, most of which were, as they usually were in this war, wounded, fewer than 100 being actually killed in action. Confederate casualties are not known, as Braxton Bragg didn't report them, but we do know that the Union forces captured over 1,600 Confederate prisoners. This massive achievement, and rare for a Civil War campaign, a not very bloody at all strategic success, was for the most part completely overshadowed in political circles and in the press by the Battle of Gettysburg and the surrender of Vicksburg, which of course happened at pretty much exactly the same time. Secretary of War Edwin Stanton was not at all appreciative of Rosecrans's achievement, and within a couple of days of the end of this Tullahoma campaign, as it became known. Stanton was already cabling Rosecrans in a nagging sort of fashion, urging him to be more aggressive. Rosecrans responded, quote, You do not appear to observe the fact that this noble army has driven the rebels from Middle Tennessee. I beg, in behalf of this army, that the War Department may not overlook so great an event, because it is not written in letters of blood, end quote. Abraham Lincoln, for his part, did write that the Tullahoma campaign was, quote, the most splendid piece of strategy I know of, end quote, and Confederate newspapers called the Tullahoma campaign masterful, and Braxton Bragg himself called what happened to his army as a result of this campaign a great disaster.
Hey everybody, CJ here. Welcome to episode 147 of the Dangerous History Podcast. This is the sparring of the amateur boxer, the not-so-civil war part nine. And I know it's been a while since my last episode, but I've been working on a whole bunch of different things behind the scenes, including upcoming episodes, both regular and Patreon bonus episodes, and other things as well. And I think you can probably appreciate if you've listened to the last Dangerous History podcast episode before this one, which was the Grunt's Eye Perspective, that I really put a lot into that one. I'm, I'm particularly proud of that one. I think it's one of the better podcast episodes I've ever made. So I think most of you probably understand why the time between episodes has been increasing lately, because the episodes themselves have, in general, become much longer and more meticulous in terms of the amount of research I've been putting into each one. So I thank most of you for your patience and understanding why the episodes are not coming out as frequently as they used to, because I used to do episodes that were, you know, 40 to 60 minutes long. And um, sometimes I still do episodes that are that short. But on the other hand, I sometimes I'm cranking out two to three hour monsters. And those take a lot more work. And I very much appreciate those who've been continuing to support the show on Patreon. By the way, I have some interesting things in the works for Patreon bonus episodes including I've been working a fair amount on an episode about the aspects of the Lincoln administration and presidency that are not directly war-related. So, you know, the parts of it you often don't hear about as far as, like, domestic policies and that sort of thing. In addition, I am working on, though still in the early stages, an episode also intended to probably be a Patreon bonus episode about rifles and riflemen of the Civil War. So kind of getting into the small arms and the usage of them, and maybe talking a bit about sharpshooters and that sort of thing. So anyway, those are just some upcoming Patreon episodes, as well as once I finished the book, That Noble Dream, which obviously, since I'm doing all this other research for other episodes, you know, it's kind of, um, I'm bouncing back and forth, read a chapter of this book, read a chapter of that book, read a chapter of this other book, etc. But once I finish the book, That Noble Dream, then I'll probably follow up with the ideology and history episode that I did as a bonus episode um, about a month ago, whenever it was, right, right before the hurricane hit my neighborhood. So I'll be following up and kind of combining the things I brought up in the original ideology and history episode with some thoughts, and it'll be kind of like partially a book review of that noble dream. But anyway, while I've lost some patrons in recent months, I've also gained a few. So big thank yous to Kim, Dave, Melvin, Tim, and Gary, who have all signed up as Patreon supporters of the Dangerous History Podcast since the last episode that I made. Thank you all very much for stepping up to help out the show and keep this thing going. I hope if you're listening and you've thought about being a Patreon supporter of the show and haven't yet done so that maybe you'll pull the trigger. Remember, for $5 or more per month contribution, not only will you receive the coveted title of Scholar Warrior, but you'll have access to special bonus episodes through Patreon that are available nowhere else, and you will be eligible to join the private Facebook group for Dangerous History Podcast Scholar Warrior supporters of this show. And by the way, if you're a supporter of the show at 5 bucks or more per month and you're not part of the Facebook group, please consider joining. I think it is a nice little community, and of course, the more people that we can get 
in it, the better it'll be. Also, I have some Amazon thank yous. First to Allison for getting me James C. Scott's latest book, Against the Grain, A Deep History of the Early States, which I'm already about halfway through and is absolutely fascinating. And thanks to longtime friend and supporter of the show, Ole, for ordering me a whole bunch of books. I got from him A Decent and Orderly Lynching by Frederick Allen, The Burglary, The Discovery of J. Edgar Hoover's Secret FBI, by Betty Metzger, and In the Shadow of War, the United States Since the 1930s by Michael Sherry. And uh, also from Ole, Statism and Anarchy by Mikhail Bakunin, and also someone, possibly Ole as well, but I'm not sure because it was a used book, so it arrived without any kind of a note. Um, Whoever it was for getting me a copy of the book London 1900, The Imperial Metropolis by Jonathan Schneer. So thank you all very much for helping out me in the show. Let's pop back into the sparring of the amateur boxer. All of the top generals that are in this episode have already been introduced along with kind of brief bios in previous episodes of this series. So let's go ahead and jump back into the story in the kind of southeast Tennessee, North Georgia borderland area. The Tullahoma campaign had made Knoxville and Chattanooga in East Tennessee vulnerable to Union forces. Union ascendment was generally very strong in most of East Tennessee, especially in Knoxville. And Chattanooga was, of course, very important in strategic terms, because, as I've already mentioned, the gap made by the Tennessee River in the mountains there, where the city is located, is the gateway into northern Georgia, and also hosted the only railroad junction that linked the inland Confederacy with the eastern coastal parts of the Confederacy. Now, Grant's taking of Vicksburg and thus sealing up Union control of the Mississippi River had already split the Confederacy in half there, and now taking Chattanooga would in effect split the eastern portion of the Confederacy itself in half. Lincoln urged Rosecrans to move quickly on Chattanooga, while General Ambrose Burnside, commanding the 10,000-man Army of the Ohio, would move from Kentucky down towards Knoxville. But once again, Rosecrans refused to be rushed, and he wanted to carefully plan and prepare before moving. So it was not until August 16th that he finally would start to move on Chattanooga. As with the Tullahoma campaign, Rosecrans would use feints and maneuver to try and avoid a direct bloodbath. He made a feint at crossing the Tennessee River north of Chattanooga, but then in reality sent most of his forces to cross the river at undefended spots south of the city, aiming to take the railroad that ran down toward Atlanta. Simultaneously, Burnside's Army of the Ohio moved in columns through the gaps in the mountains towards Knoxville. The small number of Confederate forces who were defending the city, who were also facing local Union partisans as well as Burnside's advancing army, 
They abandoned the city without any real fight, and on September 3rd, Burnside got a warm welcome from the city's residents. The Confederate troops that had been there fled south to join Bragg's force at Chattanooga. They arrived there on September 8th, just as Bragg was abandoning Chattanooga to pull down into northern Georgia. Jefferson Davis urged Braxton Bragg to try to regain the offensive as soon as possible, hoping that he might be able to get Bragg to sort of pull a Robert E. Lee-style salvaging of the situation by going on offense. But of course, Braxton Bragg was no Robert E. Lee. Davis sent two divisions from Mississippi to reinforce Bragg, and Davis also tried to get Robert E. Lee to personally go out there to take command of the Army of Tennessee, which Lee, of course, refused, as he was always focused on Virginia and wanted to go on offense again against the Army of the Potomac in northern Virginia. Some historians have argued that Davis should have simply ordered Lee to go take command in the East Tennessee Theater because... It might have been the only possible way of turning things around there, because Lee, had he gone out there, would have taken over the reins completely from Bragg. But instead, since Lee wouldn't go, Jefferson Davis ordered Lee's old warhorse, General James Longstreet, to detach two of his divisions from Lee's army, a total of about 12,000 men, and go and reinforce Bragg. Longstreet's forces set out on September 9th and had to, because of the strategic situation in that area, take a roundabout route to get from Virginia to East Tennessee, a route that encompassed over 900 miles of railroads and led through North Carolina, South Carolina, and Georgia, and that was basically about twice as long as the direct route would have been if they'd been able to do so. Longstreet was... Certainly a much more competent general than Braxton Bragg, but unfortunately for him, Bragg would outrank him in this campaign. Bragg's forces were already almost numerically equal to Rosecrans's, and now, knowing that Longstreet's two divisions were on the way, Bragg decided to go ahead and take the initiative. He sent phony deserters toward Union positions, telling stories that the Army of Tennessee was retreating yet again to lure Rosecrans in. And Rosecrans fell for it. For once, he pushed ahead very aggressively, but unfortunately for him and his army, he'd chosen the very worst opportunity to break character and be really aggressive, rather than his normal kind of methodical and cautious way. As Rosecrans pushed forward from September 10th through the 13th, Bragg ordered a total of three surprise attacks against the Army of the Cumberland, and in every case... The subordinate misunderstood the orders. Bragg was notorious for giving problematic orders that were, you know, unclear or what have you. And apparently in each case, the subordinate general was interpreting the orders to mean that going on attack was optional or discretionary. And in part because Bragg's subordinates did not have any faith in him by this point, they didn't carry out their attacks, and as a result, they missed some key opportunities to strike. On September 18th, with some of Longstreet's forces beginning to arrive, Bragg came up with a new plan of attack on the left of Rosecrans's army, but for various reasons, his attacks were delayed. Finally, in the early hours of September 19th, 1863, elements of the Army of Tennessee and the Army of the Cumberland collided near 
Chickamauga Creek, which will give this battle its name. This battle would be the bloodiest battle in the Western theater of the Civil War, and one that took place mostly in very dense forested terrain. This would make for a very confusing, chaotic, and often close-quarters battle. The famous Southern diarist Mary Chestnut said that most of the Western battles of the Civil War were basically kind of like barroom brawls, meaning rather chaotic and destructive, but not very effective at accomplishing anything. Confederate General D.H. Hill, who was probably one of the more competent generals in this theater of the war, would refer to the Confederates' performance at the Battle of Chickamauga as, quote, the sparring of the amateur boxer, and not the crushing blows of the trained pugilist, end quote. And that's true in terms of the clumsiness of the fighting, but this is like a really big, tough amateur fighter, but one who can actually take and give a lot of punishment— but since that punishment is not targeted and focused effectively, it doesn't actually bring down his opponent, although he can do a lot of damage. And to be fair, for the most part, the Union Army's performance wasn't a whole lot different at this battle either. Historian Stephen Woodworth described the battle overall in the following terms, quote, The land between Chickamauga Creek and the Lafayette Road was gently rolling but almost completely wooded. In the woods, no officer above brigadier could see all his command at once, and even the brigadiers often could see nobody's troops but their own, and perhaps the enemy's. Chickamauga would be a classic soldier's battle, but it would test officers at every level of command in ways they had not previously been tested. An additional complication was that each army would be attempting to fight a shifting battle while shifting its own position. Each general would have to conduct a battle while shuffling his own units northward towards an enemy of whose position he could only get the vaguest idea. Strange and wonderful opportunities would loom out of the leaves, vines, and gunsmoke, be touched and vaguely sensed, and then fade away again into the figurative fog of confusion that bedeviled men on both sides. In retrospect, victory for either side would look simple when unit positions were reviewed on a neat map, but in Chickamauga's torn and smoky woodlands, nothing was simple." End quote. Throughout the day of September 19th, Bragg ordered repeated attacks on the Union Army's left, none of which succeeded, but which produced savage fighting and lots of casualties on both sides. That night, James Longstreet personally arrived, along with more of his soldiers. Longstreet, by the way, had actually been Rosecrans's roommate at West Point, so he's now facing his former roommate as the commander of the other side in this battle. Bragg put Longstreet in charge of the left side of the army and put General Leonidas Polk in charge of the right. Bragg ordered them to attack the next morning. Polk would attack first on his side, and then Longstreet would attack on the other. But Polk's attack was very late and badly bungled and ended up being very ineffective. And at around 11.30 in the morning or so, Bragg ordered Longstreet to go ahead and attack on his side. Meanwhile behind Union lines, General Rosecrans received an incorrect report from a staff officer that there was a major gap in the Union lines. In reality, there wasn't. It was just that the troops were hidden by some dense foliage. But Rosecrans believed this report, and as a result, he shifted forces to there from elsewhere and ended up in the process of trying to 
plug a gap that wasn't real, creating a real gap. And by a huge stroke of luck, good for the Confederates, bad for the Yankees. The gap that Rosecrans created by doing this happened to be exactly in the spot where Longstreet's forces were advancing. Now, Longstreet, being a competent general, realized the opportunity and poured as many of his men as he could into this gap in the Union lines. And as a result, about a third of Rosecrans's army, including Rosecrans himself, were soon retreating back towards Chattanooga. The nerve that Rosecrans had displayed at Stones River was just not there for him at Chickamauga. Apparently, he believed most of his army was broken and so decided to personally retreat. Meanwhile, Union General George Thomas organized a makeshift defensive position on a ridge where they would fight off repeated attacks from Longstreet's forces for the rest of the day, after which they would then head northwest towards Chattanooga, where Rosecrans and the other part of the army had gone. George Thomas would become known as the Rock of Chickamauga for this stand. The next day, Longstreet wanted to press the offensive and try to strike Rosecrans's forces before they reached Chattanooga, which had strong defenses, but Bragg didn't do it. His army was down by close to a third, having suffered over 18,000 casualties, over 2,300 of whom were killed, over 14,000 wounded, and over 1,600 captured. Among the Confederate casualties were no less than 10 generals. The Union had suffered nearly as badly, taking about 16,000 casualties, over 1,600 of whom were killed, over 9,700 wounded, and 4,700 combined of captured and missing. Since Bragg's forces had actually had uh, something that was rare for a Confederate army in a battle in this war, they had had a slight numerical advantage in this battle. Both sides had suffered roughly equal casualties, proportionally speaking, about 28%. This was the costliest battle in the West, and ultimately the second costliest of the war behind only Gettysburg. Bragg had managed to win a tactical victory, although in reality we could say it had more to do with Rosecrans making a colossal error and Longstreet, through a combination of luck and taking advantage of that luck, seizing the initiative to exploit that mistake rather than through anything that Bragg had done in terms of planning or anything like that. His his overall tactics and planning for this battle were not particularly impressive, but the frictions of war just caused the other side to screw something up that someone on the spot was able to exploit. But nonetheless, you could say it was a tactical victory in that he made the Union Army retreat. But the huge costs of this victory, it's often compared to a Pyrrhic victory, the huge costs of this combined with Bragg's hesitation to follow it up, which is at least in part understandable. His army had been badly mauled in the fighting as well. This all meant that in strategic terms, this battle just didn't amount to much because Rosecrans's army was able to pull back to Chattanooga successfully, despite taking heavy losses. Chickamauga was the last real Confederate victory in this theater of the war, and it's, again, this very high-cost Pyrrhic victory. Confederate General D.H. Hill wrote this of the effects of Chickamauga on Confederate soldiers, quote, It seems to me that the elan of the southern soldier was never seen after Chickamauga. 
He fought stoutly to the last, but after Chickamauga, with the sullenness of despair and without the enthusiasm of hope. That barren victory sealed the fate of the Confederacy. End quote. Bragg did eventually pursue the Army of the Cumberland, but he didn't get to Chattanooga until Rosecrans's forces were already behind some pretty strong defenses. So, as a result, Bragg decided to surround the city and lay siege to it, which probably was the smartest move in that situation. But by the middle of October, it looked like Bragg might actually succeed. He might actually force the surrender of Chattanooga and the Army of the Cumberland. He had placed forces on several key strategic pieces of high-ground geography around the city, including some artillery on Lookout Mountain and lots of infantry dug in on a big ridge known as Missionary Ridge, which essentially was the center of Bragg's overall lines. Bragg successfully cut off the main supply routes, the roads into Chattanooga and railroads and all that, so the Union forces in the city were quickly running low on food. Rosecrans, for his part, seemed to be really kind of losing it between the loss at Chickamauga and then getting surrounded and besieged. He didn't seem to know what to do. And Lincoln said something about him along the lines of he is like a stunned duck that's been hit on the head, something along those lines. Lincoln and Secretary of War Stanton sent some additional Union forces toward Chattanooga, along with Ulysses Grant whom Lincoln had promoted by creating something called the Division of the Mississippi, which was a command that would encompass all of the territory between the Appalachians and the Mississippi River, and of course then putting Grant in charge of this theater of the war. While he was on the way, Grant made orders that Rosecrans would be relieved of his command of the Army of the Cumberland and that he would be replaced in that spot by Thomas, the Rock of Chickamauga. When Grant arrived in Chattanooga via a difficult mountain route that had not been cut off by the Confederates, he arrived on October 23rd and found that Rosecrans actually had a good understanding of the enemy's positions, and he had even drawn up some decent plans to try to break the siege, but that, I guess because of the funk he was in, he hadn't really done anything to carry out those plans in practice. Grant thought the plans were good enough that they basically became his plans. Grant was able to quickly establish some supply lines into Chattanooga, which was dubbed the Cracker Line by the hungry Union soldiers in the city, most likely a reference to hardtack, rather than cracker in the sense of, you know, any kind of anti-Southern slur. And as Grant began executing his plans, which had been Rosecrans's plans, he began making some headway against Confederate positions outside of Chattanooga. And his energetic, kind of low-key, but no-nonsense, get-things-done personal presence, and his seeming confidence, in contrast to Rosecrans, just this seems to have had a lot to do with 
turning the situation around. The Army of the Cumberland seems to have felt like, all right, here's a guy in charge who actually, not only does he know what to do, but he's going to get it done and do so, you know, efficiently and quickly. Again, Rosecrans had apparently been in quite a lethargic funk ever since Chickamauga. Not long after Grant got to Chattanooga, reinforcements from Sherman's Army of the Tennessee, and by the way, quick uh, distinction here, Union armies in this war were typically named after rivers, Confederate armies were typically named after states. So there's a Confederate army called the Army of Tennessee, and there's a Union army called the Army of the Tennessee, that of course referring to the Tennessee River. So anyway, reinforcements from William Becomes a Sherman's Army of the Tennessee, and also some reinforcements that had been detached all the way from the Army of the Potomac in northern Virginia and sent to Chattanooga began to arrive as well. Those, I believe, were under the command of Fighting Joe Hooker, who, while he had failed as the overall commander of the Army of the Potomac, had proven to be, for the most part, a fairly competent kind of subordinate general. So these reinforcements begin to arrive. Grant has reestablished supply lines into Chattanooga. And at the same time, on the other side, Confederate General Braxton Bragg, who always had a very difficult and cantankerous personality and always had trouble with people both above and below him in the chain of command, he was getting into severe conflicts with some of his subordinates. And it was getting very bad. In fact, it got so bad that his cavalry chief, Nathan Bedford Forrest, simply refused to serve under Bragg any longer and left and was transferred to Mississippi. On his way out, Forrest told Bragg, quote, I have stood your meanness as long as I intend to. You have played the part of a damned scoundrel. If you ever again try to interfere with me or cross my path, it will be at the peril of your life. End quote. In addition to that, some of Bragg's other subordinate generals actually directly petitioned to President Davis to try to get Bragg fired. And Longstreet even wrote to the Confederate Secretary of War also asking that Bragg be removed from his command and basically saying that if Bragg stayed in charge of this army, there wasn't much hope. In October of 1863, Jefferson Davis went to meet with Bragg and his subordinates personally, and in front of both Bragg and Davis, every single one of Bragg's subordinate generals reiterated their demand that Bragg be sacked. But for whatever reason, Jefferson Davis continued to have this personal loyalty to Braxton Bragg, even though seemingly almost every other general in the Confederate Army and even uh, much of the Confederate politicians hated his guts. And it would have been one thing, in my opinion, if Bragg was cantankerous and disliked by many people, but he was getting shit done and like consistently performing well on the battlefield. But the fact of the matter is, he wasn't doing that either in, in most cases. I mean, even the victory at Chickamauga was a Pyrrhic victory, mostly based on pure luck. Now, while Davis was there at Chattanooga, he had a private meeting with Longstreet, during which time uh, most historians think that Davis offered Longstreet command of the Army of Tennessee, but Longstreet must have refused, most likely out of loyalty to Lee and to the Army of Northern Virginia, and or maybe because he was skeptical that the Army of Tennessee could really be turned around, given how much Bragg had mismanaged it, how bad morale was, etc. Longstreet apparently recommended Joseph Johnston 
be placed in command of the army. But Davis didn't like Johnston and had no faith in him, and ultimately Davis decided, after all this, to keep Bragg as commander of the Army of Tennessee. Now, as you might expect, by this point, morale in Bragg's army was absolutely terrible. Here you have this army that had started off winning a battle and then successfully surrounding and starting to besiege an enemy bottled up in a city. And not only is the siege starting to be weakened, but Bragg's army is completely starting to fall apart. Bragg, for his part, not surprisingly, retaliated against all of the generals who had spoken out against him, including Longstreet, whom he sent on a rather futile mission to try to take the city of Knoxville. Longstreet went and briefly laid siege to Knoxville, but when some Union reinforcements showed up, he decided to retreat, and in early December, he returned to Virginia. Meanwhile, Grant was setting up a plan of attack to decisively break out of the siege at Chattanooga, and the plan involved using Thomas's, now it's Thomas's, uh, battered Army of the Cumberland to carry out a feint attack on Missionary Ridge, which again was the Confederate center, while Generals Sherman and Hooker would each attack one of the Confederate flanks with their own forces. Hooker's attack, the storming of Lookout Mountain, where the Confederates had a lot of artillery, which he did on November 24th, was a success. Sherman's attack, which was aimed at what he thought was a piece of Missionary Ridge, succeeded in taking this little piece of high ground, but then it turned out they'd mistakenly hit the wrong area, and they'd actually taken a hill that was known as Billy Goat Hill that was next to Missionary Ridge, but not attached to it. In other words, it's a separate little hill. The next morning, Sherman's men tried to move on Missionary Ridge, but the Confederates fought them off. At this point, Grant ordered Thomas to carry out an attack with his army against the center of Missionary Ridge, mostly as a feint to prevent Bragg from reinforcing his flanks. And basically, the idea was, Thomas will make this kind of token frontal attack, not really expected to be very successful, but it's kind of a distraction so that then Sherman and Hooker attack from either side of Missionary Ridge. But when the Army of the Cumberland's attack on the center of Missionary Ridge went down, things happened that nobody planned or expected. Historian James McPherson describes what actually ended up happening as follows, quote, He, meaning Thomas, sent four divisions— 23,000 men covering a two-mile front across an open plain straight at the Confederate line. It looked like a reprise of Pickett's charge at Gettysburg, with the blue and the gray having switched roles. And this assault seemed even more hopeless than Pickett's, for the rebels had had two months to dig in, and Missionary Ridge was much higher and more rugged than Cemetery Ridge. Yet the Yankees swept over the first line of trenches with astonishing ease, driving the demoralized defenders pell-mell up the hill to the second and third lines at the middle and top of the crest. Having accomplished their assignment, Thomas's soldiers did not stop and await orders. For one thing, they were now sitting ducks for the enemy firing at them from above. For another, these men had something to prove to the rebels in front of them and to the Yankees on their flanks. So they started up the steep ridge, Soon, 60 regimental flags seemed to be racing each other to the top, end quote. 
Thomas had not told his men to press their attack like this, the individual men and small units and the mid- and low-level officers kind of spontaneously decided to press their initial success and just keep on pressing it. While this was going on, fog rolled in along Missionary Ridge, giving the battle the nickname, The Battle Above the Clouds. Watching the fighting, Grant was royally pissed that things had not gone off according to plan, and of course must have thought that this would be as colossal of a disaster as something like Pickett's Charge. And he asked Thomas who had ordered his men to do that, and Thomas, who no doubt was terrified as to what would happen to his men and what would happen to him in his career if things turned out badly, um, Thomas said, honestly, he didn't know. Both commanders were, of course, surprised and relieved when the attack, in fact, succeeded, and some of the troops began referring to the taking of Missionary Ridge as a miracle. Bragg's forces simply bailed and retreated from Missionary Ridge, and they didn't regroup until they were 30 miles down the road away from Chattanooga. This was by far the most noteworthy and dramatic example of that ultimate rarity in this war. That is, a case of troops carrying out a frontal assault on an entrenched enemy on high ground, and actually succeeding. How did this happen? Part of it may have been morale. The fact that the Army of the Cumberland had had Rosecrans, the loser of Chickamauga, replaced with Thomas, the Rock of Chickamauga. And of course, as I've mentioned before, the personal presence of Grant as overall commander certainly helped and gave the soldiers confidence. By contrast, the Army of Tennessee was still under the incompetent and much-despised Braxton Bragg, so they would have had terrible morale, and probably many of them knew or suspected that Bragg's quote-unquote victory at Chickamauga had largely been the result of Longstreet successfully taking advantage of the piece of dumb luck due to Rosecrans's creation of a gap in the Union lines. Also, it seems that the fact that the Union forces storming Missionary Ridge were operating in kind of a decentralized fashion, basically working as a series of small units, may have made them more effective at this attack than if, say, they'd all remained in some sort of rigid mass formation close together. One Union officer who witnessed the attack on Missionary Ridge described it as follows, quote, Little regard to formation was observed. Each battalion assumed a triangular shape, the colors at the apex. A color-bearer dashes ahead of the line and falls. A comrade grasps the flag, he too falls, and another picks it up, waves it defiantly as if bearing a charmed life. He advances steadily toward the top, end quote. Also, apparently, some of the Confederate defenders had been given orders to retreat after firing just two volleys, while others had not. And Braxton Bragg was famous for giving vague and or contradictory orders. So, apparently, when the soldiers who had been told, or at least believed they had been told, to fire two volleys and then pull back, when they began to retreat, the other soldiers, who had not received any such orders, panicked and simply joined them in retreating without quite knowing why. Lastly, the Confederate defenders on Missionary Ridge hadn't done nearly as good of a job fortifying and entrenching their positions as they could have and should have, given how long they had had to prepare. And they had also made the mistake of placing their artillery on what's known as the geographical crest of the ridge, rather than the so-called military crest, which essentially meant they didn't really have as clear of shots down the ridge at the attackers as they could have and should have. 
But overall, many historians think that the single most decisive reason for the Union's success in taking Missionary Ridge was simply that morale in Braxton Bragg's army was just so terrible. The Union suffered 5,800 casualties in the fighting around Chattanooga, about 700 of whom were killed and most of the rest wounded. Bragg reported casualties of around 6,600, less than 400 of whom he reported as being killed, and about 2,000 wounded and over 4,000 were missing, most presumed to have been taken prisoner. However, Bragg is believed to have underreported his casualties. On the other side, Grant tallied a total of over 6,000 Confederate prisoners taken, which means that Bragg's report of a total of 6,600 casualties, and again, when we say casualties, we mean killed, wounded, and missing-slash-prisoner. Bragg's report of 6,600 casualties must have been very much on the light side. Even Bragg finally realized the magnitude of his failure and the degree to which most of the fault actually lay directly with him, and he wrote to Jefferson Davis offering his resignation, saying, quote, The disaster admits of no palliation. I fear we both erred in the conclusion for me to retain command here after the clamor raised against me, end quote. Jefferson Davis accepted Bragg's resignation, finally removing him, and replaced him with Joseph Johnston, whom Jefferson Davis still hated. But Bragg wasn't entirely done with the Confederate government and the Confederate military, because Davis made Bragg his special military advisor in Richmond, which meant he still had a high position, although, at least for the sake of the Confederate military, he no longer had any field command. Apparently, Bragg did do some good in that position in terms of improving the Confederate military bureaucracy a little bit, making it more efficient, that sort of thing. But he still continued to get into personal quarrels with a lot of other generals and politicians as well. Many historians have harshly criticized Davis for keeping Bragg in command of a key army in the West for so long, when it should have appeared obvious that not only was he hated by most of his own officers and men, but on top of that, he wasn't even a very good battlefield commander. And many argue that by the time Davis finally got rid of Bragg in that command, it may have been simply too late to really sort of salvage the situation in that theater of the war. And this reflects poorly on Davis's performance as chief executive of the Confederate government, that he would oftentimes put not-so-competent people in important jobs and keep them there out of some sort of personal loyalty or personal politics, despite the harm it was causing to the Confederate war effort, and how he would sometimes resist placing certain people in certain jobs because he didn't like them, even though they might have been better people for the job. And things like he, when he urged Lee to do stuff, he typically would allow Lee to kind of overrule him, even in cases where Davis may have actually been more correct than Lee. And by contrast, for all of his faults and, and blunders in strategic ideas and setting aside questions of morality and so on, just purely from a performance point of view, Lincoln was better than Davis just in terms of Lincoln was much more quick to replace people who weren't doing the job and that sort of thing. Historians Williamson Murray and Wayne Sia write of Bragg, quote, It was not just a matter of his fractious personality. Throughout his tenure, Bragg had displayed a penchant for indecision, a general failure to use terrain, a lack of understanding of his opponents, 
ambiguity in his orders and a demand that his subordinates follow every minutia of his instructions. To put it bluntly, Bragg never fully grasped the geography of southeastern Tennessee. End quote. Well, with the seizure of Chattanooga and the clearing out of any serious organized Confederate resistance in Tennessee, the way had been cleared for a Union push from Chattanooga southeastward across Georgia. Back in Virginia, Lincoln believed that after Gettysburg, the Army of Northern Virginia, and by extension the Confederacy itself, was pretty close to losing, close to breaking, and just needed one more big push. Less than a week after Gettysburg, Lincoln wrote, quote, If General Meade can complete his work by the literal or substantial destruction of Lee's army, the rebellion will be over. End quote. It looked like Lee might be in real trouble, because on top of all the losses from Gettysburg, it looked like Lee's army might not be able to retreat back into Virginia, because heavy rains had caused the rivers to rise so that they couldn't be forded by man or horse, and Union cavalry had raided behind Confederate positions and destroyed their pontoon bridges across the Potomac. So when the Confederate army got to the Potomac, they found it unable to be crossed. The bridges destroyed and the water levels too high to walk across. So they had their backs to the river and quickly set up a hasty defensive perimeter the best they could, expecting that the army of the Potomac would show up to finish them off. But it didn't, at least not right away. All the while, Confederate engineers got to work on makeshift bridges. They tore down some sort of little building that was nearby and started to cobble it into a bridge. And Meade's army didn't even get near to the Confederate position until July 12th. And then Meade planned to attack on the 13th. And Lincoln, the whole while, is frustrated with the holdups and wrote, quote, They will be ready to fight a magnificent battle when there is no enemy there to fight. End quote. Then Meade ended up delaying yet another day due to a planted Confederate quote-unquote deserter who told stories about Lee's army being in good shape and looking for a fight. So when Meade's army finally moved in on July 14th, they found that Lee's army had gone back across the river into Virginia on their makeshift bridge. Lincoln pretty much lost his shit and wrote, quote, There is bad faith somewhere. Our army held the war in the hollow of their hand and they would not close it, end quote. Many historians believe that Meade may have been correct to hesitate 
because it may not have been nearly such an easy thing as Lincoln thought it would have been, that if Meade had gone in aggressively, it might have turned into a bloodbath that the Army of the Potomac may not have won. Meade was tired of Lincoln riding his ass and even offered to resign, but Lincoln decided that he couldn't accept the resignation for political reasons, since Meade was seen as the great hero of Gettysburg. Instead, Lincoln wrote a rather ingratiatingly condescending letter to Meade, in which he said how much he really appreciated Meade's victory at Gettysburg, but then said that by letting Lee escape, Meade had lost the chance to end the war, and that it might now go on indefinitely, although Lincoln, after writing this letter, decided to never send it. The next major operation in Northern Virginia was what's sometimes called the Bristow Station Campaign, which ran from about October 9th through the 22nd of 1863. So this was the next campaign between the Army of the Potomac and the Army of Northern Virginia. Both armies were somewhat diminished for this campaign in manpower by having some of their divisions detached and sent westward out to East Tennessee, basically into the Chickamauga-Chattanooga stuff that I covered at the first part of this episode. Lee lost some of his troops to the Tennessee Theater first, so... When Meade found out about that, that Longstreet and a lot of his men had been sent out west, Meade initially began planning and starting the early stages of an offensive campaign to take advantage of this situation. But then Lee learned shortly after that that some of Meade's men had also been sent west, and so Lee decided to try an offensive. Lee tried to maneuver his army around Meade's army and flank it, but Meade realized what was happening, and he decided that his army wasn't at that point in a particularly advantageous position, and decided not to pick a fight there, but instead started to pull his army back northward, following a rail line. At Bristow Station, not too far from Manassas, on October 14th, some of the Confederate advance forces caught up to some of the Union rear forces and attacked them very aggressively, kind of recklessly even, because they didn't have adequate scouting and intelligence to really know what was around. And unbeknownst to the Confederates, there was an entire Union Army Corps nearby, which, when the Confederates charged in, was in a perfect position from which to attack their flank and hit them with artillery. And in this brief and rather one-sided engagement, the Confederates lost around 2,000 casualties to only 300 for the Union. After this fight, Meade continued to retreat northward toward Centerville in far northern Virginia, and Lee ultimately didn't pursue him, in part because Lee didn't have the logistics to supply his army that far north. There were a few other minor fights in this campaign, including some cavalry battles, but they didn't amount to very much. The final campaign of the year in the northern Virginia theater of the war between Lee's army and Meade's army took place from November 26th through December 1st and is known by several names, but I think most commonly called the Mine Run Campaign. This would be the final campaign of the year in this theater, after which both armies would basically call a pause and go to winter quarters. Meade received intelligence that Lee's army was split in two near a place called Mine Run, so Meade tried to launch a fast, direct attack to take advantage of that. 
But, unfortunately for Meade, the Union Army got jammed up at a river crossing, and as a result was very delayed and Meade lost the element of surprise, so basically Lee knew he was coming. Though some advance units of the two armies fought a little battle, it was pretty minor by Civil War standards in terms of casualties. Now, obviously, to those who were killed or wounded, it was a big deal, but, you know, compared to a lot of the other battles, especially by this point in the war, it's not terribly bloody, less than 2,000 total casualties, counting both sides. And Lee was able to get his army behind some strong, prepared, fortified defenses near Mine Run, and he waited there for Meade to attack this strong position. But Meade, obviously smarter in this instance than Lee had been at Gettysburg, decided that frontally attacking some strong defenses and a prepared enemy was not a wise move, so he basically called off his campaign and pulled back, and the two armies went to winter quarters. Shortly after this, about a week after the Mine Run campaign was concluded, Abraham Lincoln issued a proclamation known as the Proclamation of Amnesty and Reconstruction on December 8th, 1863. And here's most of the important parts. Quote, Whereas in and by the Constitution of the United States, it is provided that the President, quote, shall have power to grant reprieves and pardons for offenses against the United States, except in cases of impeachment, end quote, and whereas a rebellion now exists whereby the loyal state governments of several states have for a long time been subverted and many persons have committed and are now guilty of treason against the United States, and Whereas with reference to said rebellion and treason, laws have been enacted by Congress declaring forfeitures and confiscation of property and liberation of slaves, all upon terms and conditions therein stated, and also declaring that the president was thereby authorized at any time thereafter by proclamation to extend to persons who may have participated in the existing rebellion in any state or part thereof pardon and amnesty with such exceptions and at such times and on such conditions as he may deem expedient for the public welfare and Whereas it is now desired by some persons heretofore engaged in said rebellion to resume their allegiance to the United States and to reinaugurate loyal state governments within and for their respective states, therefore, I, Abraham Lincoln, President of the United States, do proclaim, declare, and make known to all persons who have, directly or by implication, participated in the existing rebellion, except as hereinafter accepted, that a full pardon is hereby granted to them, and each of them, with restoration of all rights of property, except as to slaves, and in property cases where rights of third parties shall have intervened, and upon the condition that every such person shall take and subscribe an oath, and thenceforward keep and maintain said oath inviolate, and which oath shall be registered for permanent preservation, and shall be of the tenor and effect following, to wit, quote, I, fill in your name here, do solemnly swear, in presence of Almighty God, that I will henceforth faithfully support, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States and the Union of the States thereunder, and that I will, in like manner, abide by and faithfully support all acts of Congress passed during the existing rebellion with reference to slaves, so long and so far as not repealed, modified, or held void by Congress, 
or by decision of the Supreme Court, and that I will, in like manner, abide by and faithfully support all proclamations of the President made during the existing rebellion, having reference to slaves, so long and so far as not modified or declared void by decision of the Supreme Court, so help me God. End quote. The persons accepted from the benefits of the foregoing provisions are all who are or shall have been civil or diplomatic officers or agents of the so-called Confederate government, all who have left judicial stations under the United States to aid the rebellion, all who are or shall have been military or naval officers of said so-called Confederate government above the rank of colonel in the army or of lieutenant in the navy all who left seats in the United States Congress to aid the rebellion, all who resigned commissions in the Army or Navy of the United States and afterwards aided the rebellion, and all who have engaged in any way in treating colored persons or white persons in charge of such, otherwise than lawfully as prisoners of war. And I do further proclaim, declare, and make known that whenever in any of the states of Arkansas, Texas, Louisiana, Mississippi, Tennessee, Alabama, Georgia, Florida, South Carolina, and North Carolina, a number of persons, not less than one-tenth in number of the votes cast in such state at the presidential election of the year of our Lord 1860, shall have taken the oath aforesaid, and not having since violated it, and being a qualified voter by the election law of the state existing immediately before the so-called act of secession, and excluding all others, shall reestablish a state government which shall be Republican, and in no wise contravening said oath, shall be recognized as the true government of the state, and the state shall receive thereunder the benefits of the constitutional provision which declares that the United States shall guarantee to every state in this union a Republican form of government and shall protect each of them against invasion and on application of the legislature or the executive when the legislature cannot be convened against domestic violence. And I do further proclaim, declare, and make known that any provision which may be adopted by such state government in relation to the freed people of such state, which shall recognize and declare their permanent freedom, provide for their education, and which may be consistent as a temporary arrangement with their present condition as a laboring, landless, and homeless class, will not be objected to by the national executive. And it is suggested, as not improper, that in constructing a loyal state government in any state, the name of the state, the boundary, the subdivisions, the constitution, and the general code of laws, as before the rebellion, shall be maintained subject only to the modifications made necessary by the conditions herein before stated, and such others, if any, not contravening said conditions, and which may be deemed expedient by those framing the new state government. To avoid misunderstanding, it may be proper to say that this proclamation, so far as it relates to state governments, has no reference to states wherein loyal state governments have all the while been maintained. And for the same reason, it may be proper to further say that whether members sent to Congress from any state shall be admitted to seats constitutionally rests exclusively with the respective houses and not to any extent with the executive. And still further, that this proclamation is intended to present the people of the states wherein the national authority has been suspended and loyal state governments have been subverted, a mode in and by which the national authority and loyal state governments may be reestablished within said states or in any of them. 
And while the mode presented is the best the executive can suggest with his present impressions, it must not be understood that no other possible mode may be acceptable. Given under my hand, the city of Washington, the 8th day of December, A.D. 1863, and of the independence of the United States of America, the 88th, Abraham Lincoln, end quote. Of course, one reason for this was yet again to try to get as many Southerners as possible to decide to throw in the towel on the whole Confederacy and secession thing, and thus to try to shorten the war. However, the bad cop side of this good cop olive branch proclamation would be total war, including deliberate and systematic targeting of civilians, property, shelter, and means of subsistence. And that likely led to stiffened resistance among many Southerners, more than counterbalancing any effect of this proclamation on making some of them want to give up on secession. So it seems to have been perhaps a failure in that regard. However, another motive of Lincoln with this proclamation was to try to set up a system whereby states that had been fully reconquered by the Union as of 1864, would be able to participate in the 1864 presidential election, in which, of course, Lincoln would be seeking re-election. The idea would be that these states, by meeting the standards Lincoln set here, basically getting 10% of their voting population to swear an oath of loyalty to the Union, these states would then be, quote-unquote, reconstructed in time to participate in the 1864 presidential election. Now, the two states most in mind for this were Louisiana and Tennessee, but also there was some thought of trying to conquer Florida, though this didn't end up working out. I may mention this in a future episode. Now, you might be wondering how on earth Lincoln thought that getting some southern states, none of which you may recall had voted for him in 1860, to participate in his re-election campaign would help him And the answer was that they planned to put in place rules barring anyone with any connection to secession or the Confederate government from being allowed to vote. And basically, this would be based on the things Lincoln had said in that proclamation I just read, as far as like, oh, all of these, you know, kind of like pardons and whatever are an amnesty are not on offer to people who've actually like worked for the Confederate government or been in a middle to upper level position in the Confederate military. And they might even try to go a bit further than that as well. So basically, the idea was that they planned to put in place rules that would bar anyone from being allowed to vote in any reconstructed state who was unlikely to be at least somewhat sympathetic to Lincoln and the Union. That was the idea. So it was one of many ways Lincoln was trying to stack the deck for his re-election campaign in 1864. And sure enough, in 1864, and I'm sure I'll talk about that presidential election in more detail in a future episode, both Tennessee and Louisiana, neither of which had voted for Lincoln previously, both went for him in 1864 under this reconstruction plan, though that ended up not mattering to the campaign overall for two reasons, because number one, Congress didn't count those electoral votes from those two states anyway, and because Lincoln ended up winning anyway without those two.
In December of 1863, the poet Henry Wadsworth Longfellow learned that his son had been badly wounded in what fighting took place near Mine Run, and this was part of the inspiration for him to write the poem Christmas Bells, which was later turned into the song I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. And tip of the hat to Randy England, the retired attorney and sometimes co-host on Freedom Fiends, for alerting me to the story of this poem. I had heard the Christmas Carol version, the song I heard the bells on Christmas Day, of course, but I didn't know the backstory of the when and why Longfellow actually wrote the original poem. So it is a poem written in the midst of a bloody destructive war and lamenting this and hoping that it will be coming to an end soon. So let me share with you Christmas Bells by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play, and wild and sweet the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And thought how, as the day had come, the belfries of all Christendom had rolled along the unbroken song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Till ringing, singing on its way, the world revolved from night to day, a voice, a chime, a chant sublime, of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then from each black, accursed mouth, the cannon thundered in the south, and with the sound the carols drowned, of peace on earth, goodwill to men. It was as if an earthquake rent the hearthstones of a continent, and made forlorn the households born, of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And in despair I bowed my head, there is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then pealed the bells, more loud and deep, God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail, with peace on earth, goodwill to men. Well, unfortunately for a lot of people, including a lot of southern civilians, as well as plenty of soldiers on both sides, the bells weren't yet ready to toll of peace on earth and goodwill to men in North America, because the war was far from over, and the men now in charge of the Union military machine were believers in victory for their side, total victory, regardless of any costs or any questions about morality. On March 2nd, 1862, Ulysses Grant was appointed by Lincoln to the rank of lieutenant general in overall command of all Union forces. This wasn't terribly surprising at this point. Grant's star, of course, as we had seen, had been rising for a while as the most competent general in the West on either side, and his victories at Vicksburg and Chattanooga had only increased that. Plus, unlike so many other generals with whom Lincoln had been frustrated, like McClellan, Rosecrans, and Meade, Grant was decisive, efficient once he had a mission to accomplish, and certainly not afraid to be aggressive. And Grant wanted to be aggressive. He wanted to make the overall Union war effort even more aggressive than it had been, and to simultaneously push hard on all fronts in all ways. He wanted a policy of total war. And as part of that, he appointed his friend William Tecumseh Sherman 
to be commander of Division of the Mississippi, basically giving him Grant's prior job as commander of all Union forces in the field between the Appalachian Mountains and the Mississippi River. And let me just share with you the words of William Tecumseh Sherman not long before his appointment to that position. Now, many people have heard his famous saying that war is hell and all that, but he said all that and more on many occasions. He said lots of things like this, some of it quite vicious and remorseless. So, this is William Tecumseh Sherman writing to Henry Halleck back in September of 1863, just months before he would be appointed to command the division of the Mississippi. Sherman wrote, I would assert the broad doctrine that we will remove and destroy every obstacle, if need be, take every life, every acre of land, every particle of property, everything that seems to us proper, that we will not cease till that end is attained, that all who do not aid our enemies, and that we will not account to them for our acts. If the people of the South oppose, they do so at their own peril. No peace on earth and goodwill to men. Thank you for listening to the Dangerous History Podcast. Check out the website, profcj.org, or you can just put in dangerousherypodcast.com to get the show notes for this and every other Dangerous History Podcast episode. While you're there, you can email subscribe to the site over in the right-hand side, and if you put in your email address there and subscribe, you won't get any spam or anything like that from me, no junk email. You'll simply get an email notification every time something new is posted at my website. You can follow me and the show on Facebook and Twitter as well, and you can subscribe to the podcast in iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, however you prefer to consume your podcasts. If you enjoy and appreciate this show, there are many different ways you can help me keep this show going, growing, and constantly improving. One easy way is simply to spread the word about the Dangerous History Podcast to those you think might appreciate it who don't already know about it. And you can also help the show out by leaving ratings or reviews in venues such as iTunes, which helps the podcast get ranked more highly. If you would like to help out the show financially, there are many ways to do so, and you'll find them at profcj.org slash donate. And one of the best most helpful is to sign up to support the show via Patreon at patreon.com slash profcj. And if you pledge a contribution of at least $5 per month or more, you'll have access to bonus episodes that I publish in Patreon available nowhere else, as well as the ability to join the Dangerous History Podcast Scholar Warriors private Facebook group. You can also make one-time or recurring donations via PayPal, and you can donate via Bitcoin as well. And of course, if you buy things from any of my Amazon affiliate links or my A-Books affiliate links, go through those links, then do your shopping as normal, and the Dangerous History Podcast will get a small commission at no additional cost to you. 
This has been another episode of the Dangerous History Podcast, helping you learn the past so you can understand the present and prepare for the future.